I'm Chris McAlilly. And I'm Eddie Rester. Welcome to The Wait. Today, we are taking a little different approach. We're doing a, a series on the heart of Methodism. Most of the podcasts that you hear on The Wait will come out on Thursdays, and they will be on a wide range of topics on faith and culture and all kinds of stuff. And uh, if you are stumbling upon this, you should go check that out. Go check that out for sure. In this series, what we're going to do is release uh, a series of conversations on the heart of one particular religious expression uh, that Eddie and I happen to be a part of. We're both pastors uh, in the Methodist uh, tradition. And so we're going to be doing a series of conversations on the heart of Methodism. And this is one of those conversations. Yeah, today we're talking with Dr. John Wigger. He's a professor of history at the University of Missouri, and he's written a lot of interesting books. Most recently, he's written about uh, D.B. Cooper, who hijacked uh, the first American hijacker back in the uh, 1970s. He's written about uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, but a lot of his work has been on the early days of the Methodist movement in America, really looking at right after the American Revolution into you know, almost the first half of the 19th century. Uh, Chris, what what for you was important in the conversation today? Again, that for us, we seem so disconnected from that history, but what, what do you bring forward from that conversation? I think one of the things that he mentioned that I've heard before, but uh, that I would highlight is that in the 20th century, really the most explosive religious movement globally is Pentecostalism. Uh, Pentecostalism around the globe has been the expression of Christianity that's really taken uh, uh, an explosive growth trajectory in uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Africa, around the globe, in, Af- in Africa and Asia and other parts of the world. In the, in the 19th century, and particularly in the American context, 19th century Methodism was that explosive religious movement. Right. Uh, that shaped uh, America. There, there are other forms, but it really, it really was uh, a central part of shaping American religious life. And uh, and so those connections between early Methodism, Pentecostalism, he mentioned, comes out of the same religious tradition or kind of theological heritage as Methodism. And so just thinking about those connections of uh, of what what is at the heart of an explosive growth movement. Uh, in religious or spiritual life, uh, I think those those parts of the conversation I'll, I'll take forward. What about you? You know, a lot of that for me, kind of the same, but just uh, Methodism's ability to kind of shift and reinvent itself uh, over the first century and a half or more. Um, so important. It, they knew who they were, um, but allowed themselves to be in the moment uh, they were in. And I think that for me was important. Dr. Wigger has a lot of great wisdom though. He's done a lot of research. Um, and so I learned a lot just listening uh, to him today. And we think you will as well. So uh, particularly if you're part of our tribe or the extended tribe uh, of the Methodist movement, uh, we think these conversations are going to be very important. We're glad uh, you're sharing in them with us. Make sure you like them, share them, uh, send them to your mom and them. Uh, send them to your mama. Send them to your send mama. Them to your and, mom. Make, sure, make and, your mom. And who? Your mom and, and who? And, and, and them. And them. All yeah, right. That there means them. Oh, that's and, them. And the and Ac- Choc- and, and uh, what is the county? Choctaw County. Choctaw, Choctaw, Choctaw county. county. There you go. In the Choctaw exactly. County parlance. Make there sure 
Uh, if you're from Choctaw County, you give us a shout out. <laughs> All those Choctaw County listeners, we, we love you. You know, you're special and dear to Eddie's heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Life can be heavy. So heavy, in fact, that the weight we carry can sometimes cause us to lose hope. But we've all come across those people in life who seem to be experiencing the same world we live in, except they maintain a great depth of joy and hope. A former generation called this gravitas. It was their description of a soul that had gained enough weightiness to be attractive like all things with a gravitational pull. Those are the people we want to talk to. On this podcast, we talk to pastors, entrepreneurs, artists, mental health experts, and many others. We'll create space for heavy topics, but we'll be listening for a quality of soul that could be called gravitas. Welcome to The Weight. We're here today with Dr. John Wigger. He's a professor at the University of Missouri. Uh, Dr. Wigger, we're so glad that you've joined us today. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. You've written a, a, a lot about Methodism. We're going to get to that in, in just a minute, but you've also written about D.B. Cooper, really the first person to hijack in the modern, I guess, ever, an airplane. How did you end up moving from Methodism and religious studies to, to D.B. Cooper? Well, actually, flying has always been a part of my life. Um, I grew up flying with my dad. Some of my earliest memories are in airplanes flying with my dad. And uh, I was a pilot uh, for a for a long time, we owned airplanes growing up. Uh, my dad had several different airplanes. So flying was something I've always been interested in. And I, a few years ago, started teaching a history of flight course at the University of Missouri. And it actually began a project on early flight um, in the, the second and decade of the 20th century, just right before and after World War One. But I noticed that students, their favorite lecture, um, much more so than Amelia Earhart or anyone else, was D.B. Cooper. So I thought, well, this is interesting, and just started trying to expand the concept. Um, Eventually got in touch with another uh, airline hijacker, Martin McNally. Um, Talked to Marty, actually had Marty zoom in and talk to the class about his hijacking in June of 1972. He also... Uh, parachuted out of the back of a 727 like D.B. Cooper. And from that teaching experience, just kept sort of expanding outward until I realized there was there was a pretty good book in the story. So that's that's how I how I, how I ended up doing that. Well, I'm, I'm going to, have to check that one out because I'm familiar with Methodism work, but but that one seems like something I'd be interested in. Yeah, and I think, you yeah. know, I'm sure most students are more interested in the history of flight than the history of Methodism, uh, you know, just kind of as a general rule. Well, yes. I mean, there nowadays, it's hard for most of them to appreciate that Methodism was exciting at some point. And uh, yeah, so that's probably the case. It's definitely the case. <laughs> so, so for you, I, what was the, I mean, you're at three books uh, on kind of the history of Methodism. Uh, in various ways, and we'll kind of get to get to those. But I guess what what animated that that interest for you personally? Well, I think in in the sense of um, American religion, I've always been interested in groups that grew uh, really quickly by doing something new in their cultural setting. 
And uh, certainly in the late 18th, early 19th century, that was Methodism. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, Methodism is the religious movement of the 19th century in the same way that uh, in the U.S., Pentecostalism and a lot of the other, uh, a lot of the rest of the world, Pentecostalism is the religious movement of the 20th century. You really focus in uh, in your books on that period from the Revolutionary War to about 1820. Uh, what is it about that era that for you makes Methodism so fascinating or interesting? What was happening uh, during that time that really kind of animated um, the denomination? American culture changed in some pretty dramatic ways after the revolution and Methodists were able to follow that change and in a lot of ways lead it as well. So they were involved in shaping culture and interacting with American culture. And one of the results of that was that was the period in which Methodists grew the most spectacularly. Um, They just exploded from a few hundred members at the beginning of the American revolution to hundreds of thousands uh, by by the 1820s. What, what, what are some of the things, I guess, as a historian that you look at when you see um, when you see a, a cultural movement or religious movement like that? What are what are some of the the ways in which you try to get at the source of of that explosive growth as a historian? I think I was just trying to figure out how they connected. Um, why people were drawn to Methodism, why people who attended another church or didn't attend any kind of organized religion suddenly wanted to go to a Methodist meeting, um, just trying to figure out what that connection was. What are, what are some of the, the things that you notice? Um, what are some of the things that you would lift up as kind of essential to, to that attraction? Well, Methodists changed the nature of religious leadership. So in colonial America, um, ministers had mostly been college-educated elites at a time when almost nobody went to college. Um, And that's what colonial Americans expected. They expected their leaders to be elites, to be, um, you know, probably the best paid and best educated person in their town. Um, After the revolution, People just didn't seem to want that anymore. And Methodist preachers were never college educated in the first um, phases of Methodist growth. Um, they looked a lot like the people they were preaching to, and that was appealing to pre- to people. Um, they also preached in a new style rather than reading their sermons in a kind of measured um, academic tone. Um, they were enthusiastic. They yelled, they screamed, they stomped around the stage, they waved their hands. And it is exactly the sort of delivery that people wanted, that people responded to. And that's not to say that it was some kind of a contrived act, because that was simply who these preachers were. I mean, they were like the people they were preaching to, and that it's they preached in the way they wanted to hear preaching. You, you're describing um, so, Eddie's preaching style, you know, stomping around. A lot around, of stomping, a lot of yelling. A lot of yelling, a lot of arm waving. Sometimes I throw hymnals at people yeah, during worship just to keep people on their toes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the, the, the 
it connected with audiences and uh, they facilitated a, a, an enthusiastic worship style as well, which also connected with audiences in that period. One of the things that's coming to mind is that what you're describing is very different from what we know of John Wesley, kind of the founder of the movement in England with his you know, very much printed sermons, although he was very dramatic when he was out preaching. Um, there, there does seem to be a shift, though, from what was happening in England to what took off in the United States in terms of, um, I guess, a more democratic culture. And you talk a little bit about that um, in your your book, Taking Heaven by Storm. How did how did that how did early Methodism, its culture, and the democratic culture emerging in the United States, how did those feed off each other? How did they work together? Yes. Um, I think John Wesley, of course, was brilliant at mediating between uh, Methodism as, as he formulated it in Britain with the cultural expectations of the time and place. But in the American landscape, things were simply different. Um, and here, I think Francis Asbury was brilliant in that even though he was one of Wesley's preachers, grew up outside of Birmingham, um, he was able to appreciate how American culture was different and and uh, how Methodism in America needed to, to kind of reformulate itself. And of course, since most of his preachers were young Americans, uh, there wasn't any reformulation for them. This was simply the religion that they knew. When when you think and really you you put a lot of the explosive growth uh, kind of the, the really you go back to those preachers um, a lot of a lot of people want to point to Francis Asbury some people want to talk particularly when you, you get to mid to late nineteenth century they want to talk about the camp meetings but you really return to those early itinerant circuit riders. So what was life like for those young circuit riders? What did they endure? What was what what sent them out to do the work that they did? Yes, I, I think to start with, Methodism involved a lot of people in leadership who had never been a part of of shaping their their religious communities before and it started with class leaders and um, band leaders and local preachers but then if you sort of continued on up uh, exhorters continued on up through through the different levels of responsibility um, you could become an itinerant preacher these young men could become an itinerant preacher and they really were the ones who shepherded the movement um, across the American landscape, so to speak. It was a hard life. Um, you were traveling every day, preaching nearly every day. So uh, the typical circuit was a four-week circuit, took four weeks to ride around with usually about 30 preaching appointments. So that means you're preaching just about every day and traveling just about every day. Um, your salary is not very much, $64 a year if you got it, um, up to $1,800, um, which was very much a kind of working person's uh, income. Um, so it was, in many regards, a hard life. Um, and, and for that reason, not many itinerant preachers 
stuck with it for more than a few years. The vast majority preached for a few years and then married and located in the Methodist parlance and became local preachers. Um, almost none of them left the church. Uh, they, they didn't locate because they were uh, disenchanted with Methodism, but because they simply couldn't keep up the itinerant lifestyle for very long. It was a hard life, but most of those itinerant preachers never regretted it afterwards, or at least they that this is not what they said later in life. One of the things that you say about Asbury is that he was more widely recognized face-to-face than any person in his generation, including Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, which is just a remarkable statement. Uh, and I mean, certainly it, it uh, reflects his widespread travel uh, through the broader you know, Methodist connection and through the frontier. But just talk, talk about why that was, why, why Asbury had such a wide-ranging, I guess, influence. Yeah, I think the key there is more widely recognized face-to-face. Of course, people had heard of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, but how many Americans had actually met them um, or sat down and had a conversation with them um, around a fireplace? And that was true of Francis Asbury. He traveled relentlessly for his 45 years in America, um, made an annual circuit north to south, east to west, um, and not the same circuit. Every year was different, so that deliberately so, so that he could meet new people and visit new places. And uh, he stayed in people's homes. He stayed in the homes of, of ordinary Methodists. I think one of the remarkable things about that is that the closer people got to Asbury, the better they liked him. And mm. how many celebrities is that true of, right? <laughs> the, the more time you spend with them, the, the better you like them. You see them when they get up in the morning, um, when they're tired, when they're exhausted, um, and you like them, the better for it. It's well, true. And Asbury, had, Asbury has a pretty through history, pretty hard-edged reputation, particularly in how he um, administered the connection. Um, do you find that in your your research of him to be true, or is that just the myth that passes down through the generations? I think it was mostly the way his image was shaped after he died. Um, Methodism was an Episcopal system, And for most of his life, he was recognized as the elder bishop, the the leader of the church. And one of his responsibilities was to appoint all of the preachers, um, something he tried to hold on to through most of his career to their annual circuit. So in that sense, it's a pretty hierarchical system. And I think later people reacted against that and sort of traced the blame back to, to Frank. Um, but I don't think, any, and he had his critics um, during his lifetime, but I don't think most people, most Methodists by and large, resented his, his leadership of the church in that way. One of the things that you mentioned about him is that uh, a component of his system uh, that went to the heart of what it meant to be Methodist was to practice a method. It was the necessity of a culture of discipline. You know, one of the things that 
you know, Eddie and I have thought about is what's at the heart of Methodism and what's a, what's distinctive about it. And I feel like um, a culture of discipline would have been one of those things that, that was a part of both Francis Asbury's personal, uh, I guess, spiritual formation and discipleship, but also part of what he inculcated both in the preachers and in, in Methodist societies. I wonder if you could just speak to some of the ways in which a culture of discipline is distinctive to Methodism of that period. Yeah, I think you're right about both aspects of that. Um, part of it was as with Asbury was his personal piety. Um, he got up every morning to pray uh, in the hours before dawn or, or shortly thereafter. Um, he never owned more than he could carry on horseback, mm-hmm. um, never, never married, never settled down, never engaged with any of the trappings of power. And again, people could see this because he spent his entire life out among them, living as a house guest in their home. Um, coupled with that, though, was his conviction that his followers needed to have a level of discipline in their lives. Um, and part of that was, for example, um, attending your weekly class meeting. So what made you a member of a Methodist church was not attending Sunday preaching. It was attending your weekly small group uh, meeting, which they called a class meeting. Um, so there was that discipline that you had to be involved at some kind of significant level of accountability that um, at least Asbury thought was was important to maintaining the Methodist system. Yeah, I think I want to just underline that because I do think that that's something that shifts in the 19th century, especially as uh, Methodism becomes more established in local communities and as Methodism uh, becomes just one of the one of the many options uh, available to American religious life is that, the distinctiveness of early Methodism was to be a member is to join basically a small group. And what kind of begins to change over the course of, I guess, the 1820s, the 1830s, 1840s is really a redefinition of what it means to be a member uh, of, of a Methodist uh, church. And so you move from membership, there's this ambiguity between Methodism as um, membership as being a part of a Methodist society or class meeting to membership as being a part of a church established church. Um, yeah. What was, I guess, gained or lost in that transition uh, in terms of the distinctiveness of Methodist discipleship and kind of Methodist, the heartbeat of that movement? Yeah, I think Methodists became more comfortable. They became not so much cultural outsiders as one of the groups that defined uh, the emerging uh, middle class in the 19th century. And part of that comfortableness in American society was, was sort of, in their mind, getting rid of those hard edges of discipline that just didn't appeal to to uh, successful middle-class people. Mm. And that doesn't mean the church quit growing. In fact, it grew faster than the aggregate American population up through the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, it just, the, the, those numbers sort of fell off a cliff. Um, but uh, certainly through the 19th century, Methodist growth continued at a faster rate overall than, than the aggregate American population. 
Um, but it, its nature changed. It became less of an outsider religion of revolutionaries to more of an insider religion of the middle class. One of the things that we haven't talked about yet is what, what was the role of theology in the explosiveness of the movement? I know there were multiple strands of theology in existence then and now. One of them then was a strong Calvinist bent. Uh, so how did, how did Methodist theology enable, or or did you do you find in your research that well that just really wasn't that big of a of a deal? It was more of the the way that they drew people together and held them accountable. I think it really is more of the latter, um, but I think the theology did it certainly didn't uh, hurt Methodism's appeal. And it certainly was a big part of how Methodists saw themselves. So they were Arminians um, in a theological sense. Um, They privileged uh, free will. Um, You had to choose to believe to be a believer. You had to choose salvation. And this did appeal to democratically minded Americans um, after the American Revolution, you know, as American society developed because um, we very much believe that we are in charge of our own lives, that we choose everything important about us, right? Um, right. We don't actually do that, but um, it's part of our our sort of American ethos that you can be whatever you want to be. And I, I think Methodist theology, it wasn't, it certainly John Wesley did not formulate uh, his theology to appeal to Americans. Um, but um, it did work out that way. I do. I do think that um, you know the class, the transition between a religious movement that uh, is for the uh, the working class or the working the poor and the working poor uh, to a to a, an established church for the middle class. One of the things that happens in that move through the eighteen twenties, thirties, forties is that you do have the rise of holiness movements, these, it, I, you know, part of that is, I assume, uh, kind of uh, class-based as well. Like there's a, uh, there's both a, a theological bend in the holiness movement. And then also I think there's a, uh, there's a kind of class dimension. I could be reading that wrong. I wonder if you could maybe talk about that. Some of the rise of folks like Phoebe Palmer, uh, you know, in the 1830s and, and others. No, that is true. Um, as Methodists uh, become more more kind of middle class, um, as Methodists become more middle class, and they sort of leave behind that that what we would think of as working class element um, of, of people, they they simply don't have contact with them anymore. So it's not a decision. I, when I talk about this, I, I don't want it to come across as some kind of class-based decision. We don't want to be around. We don't want those people anymore. Um, I think the better way to say it is, as Methodists become one kind of people, they lose contact with other sorts of people. And one of the uh, movements that sort of fills that gap is the holiness movement, which comes from Wesleyan roots. So it's just a reformulation of Wesleyanism, of Methodism, to engage an audience that the the mainstream Methodist church no longer has contact with. 
And then in the early 20th century, Pentecostalism is a further outgrowth of Wesleyan theology and Wesleyan patterns and belief um, that, again, engages audiences that mainstream Methodism is, is simply no longer able to touch. Um, Pentecostalism's baptism of the Holy Spirit is really largely um, modeled on Wesley's uh, concept of sanctification. Yeah, one of the, I think that's one of the things that people don't readily connect is this, the larger kind of charismatic or Pentecostal uh, movement back to Wesleyan, Wesleyan roots. Um, you know, that's maybe it's surprising uh, for some folks to hear. Uh, but, but I, but I do think that's something that has become more apparent in uh, Wesleyan studies is is thinking not only about the origins of Methodism looking backwards, but kind of the, uh, you know, where the waters of Methodism go as they travel downstream. And, you know, uh, you know, Pentecostalism is, is one of those realities. I wonder, you know, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it just makes the story more interesting, more exciting. Um, you know, the, the narrative arc that Methodists were outsiders who grew to be really big in the 19th century and then eventually declined in the second half of the 20th century is one way to look at it, but it's it's uh, overly simplistic. If you take the longer sort of or the broader view of Wesleyanism, then you see that there are these other groups that come out of it that, that don't do that. Um, as mainstream Methodism is declining in numbers, Pentecostalism is growing. Uh, and it comes largely, not exclusively, but largely from the same uh, roots. That that's interesting. I, th- I think when you look at it that way, it's almost as if this the movement that some people only uh, relate to a singular denomination. The larger Wesleyan movement continues to grow and expand in often unexpected ways, but also in, in ways that people don't want to connect with each other. You know, I think if you talk to some highbrow traditional United Methodists to say, oh, the the Pentecostal church down the street is your theological cousin or brother or sister, uh, they're going to look at you like you're rather odd. Um, but, but that's really the truth for us, isn't it? It, it definitely is. And I think, you know, a generation or so ago, um, those Pentecostal cousins seemed really disreputable, <laughs> uh, uh, and maybe not the sort of relatives that everybody who was a Methodist wanted to acknowledge. I think that's a little less so the case now, um, and maybe that's part of it. But um, certainly, there are connections there that that are very real and uh, um, have had a great impact. One of the things you write about uh, is this Methodism made that kind of shift in the mid-19th century between from being uh, a, a movement among the poor or the folks who were moving up to the folks who had kind of made it or had begun to make it, the, the more middle-class church. One of the, the, the things that you talk about, the croakers who uh, wish things were the way they were, they kind of downplay this new thing that Methodism has become. 
But one of the points you make is that as it made that move, it continued to outpace the growth of the United States. It continued this very fast growth trajectory. How did it maintain that even if it began to not look like what it had looked like before? Yes. Um, I love that phrase, croakers, when I first came across that 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm going to hold on to that, by the way. Yeah. It just seems so so wonderfully apt to describe uh, the complaints about Methodism's new prosperity and, and uh, um, yeah. Um, sorry, I, I strayed away a little bit. I, I think the, the reason... Well, let me start over. Um, Methodism is able to continue growing because its constituency is growing. So the American middle class, which really is created in the middle of the 19th century, um, Methodists are very much a part of that. And certainly up through the the middle of the 20th century and uh, post-Second World War prosperity, um, the American middle class is still a vibrant um, uh, big part of American society. So as Methodists are a, largely a part of that, not exclusively so, um, it's not to say that there were no working class Methodists because there certainly right. were, um, but their their constituency is still very big and broad and, uh, um, you know, they're connected to a community that, that they're still growing um, into. Um, the other question, of course, is why that that suddenly comes to a dramatic end um, in the middle of the 1960s. You know, I've got kind of two different directions that I'm thinking about. One is maybe just to get you to speculate about kind of why you think that might be from a historical perspective. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Um, I often thought if I would have stuck with studying Methodism, but I just needed to move on to other things. You took flight. Yeah. <laughs> and you checked out Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Did Jim and Tammy. Um, after living with a saint for a decade, it, I needed something that was, was uh, I needed to see something crash and burn in Jim and Tammy's <laughs> logical choice. Um, and I forgot, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question. No, now. just the question of, you know, if I think, I think this is, this is in some ways the question that folks are struggling with. Um, if, if they are connected to American Methodism, any, any kind of way that part of the origin and seemingly the DNA of Methodism is to be this explosive movement of religious uh, fervor and spiritual vitality. And at a certain moment that, that stops and, um, and there's been a long kind of slow decline. And so then the question becomes, I mean, it it has been analyzed since the 1960s in every way it can be analyzed, um, theologically, sociologically, you know, according to internal and external factors, people will say we've lost touch with Wesley or Asbury or doctrine or the Bible or Jesus. People will say we've lost touch with the culture and we've kind of lost touch with where things are moving and we need to either go back to our roots or we need to get connected again to what's going on beyond the church. 
I just wonder, you know, kind of how you read that. If, if I know that you kind of went in a different direction and you're not sure, but I, I do think it's worth spending a little time thinking about. And, you know, you've, you've done more of this reading than, than Eddie and me. I can ask Eddie, but he wouldn't know. So I wouldn't know. Yeah. So, well, if you look at um, Methodism from the late 18th century up through the middle of the 20th century, it's able to maintain a vibrant connection to its constituency, um, to the people it's reaching out to. At some point, that breaks down. So I think in some kind of baseline sense, Methodism just seems to lose touch with the people it's trying to engage. Now, why exactly that happens and how you reverse that, um, I don't know that I, I'm I'm really um, I don't know that I've really looked at recent Methodism enough to to offer anything useful um, about that. But there is some very real sense in which uh, it just hasn't maintained that connection that it had in the past. Yeah, I wonder, you know, I mean, one of the the things about that transition from into the middle class and kind of late late 19th century Methodism is that you have, there's an entrepreneurial spirit about it. You know, I, I definitely think that um, Asbury had some of that and those early preachers did. And then there's this other kind of expression of it in the form of the creation of universities, hospitals, and institutions that kind of uh, shape the landscape of of uh, the social life of of uh, of American cities and and communities. I don't know. I wonder. I, I, I do think that that maybe go back and talk a little bit about that. Part of the move into the middle class was the. It, both the establishment and communities and the creation of certain institutions that that helped American life flourish. Maybe start there and and maybe we could talk forward. Yeah, talking about class formation can sound pretty abstract and and not very interesting, but um, I think maybe the better way to say it is that Methodists were doing things that people were interested in. So in an era when colleges and universities, more people wanted to send their kids to, to college, um, Methodists built colleges and they built some of the best colleges and universities um, in the nation. Duke, SMU, Vanderbilt, um, Northwestern, um, all of these schools that become kind of mainstays of American higher education. So they're doing things that people are interested in. Um, you mentioned Methodist hospitals. Um, yeah, I mean, this is something that is, as medicine expanded as a kind of thing that people wanted more of in their lives, um, got better. Methodists were a part of that as well. So they were doing things that people were interested in and that um, kept people connected to the church and the movement. Um, if you at the, at the point at which Methodist the mainstream Methodism begins to decline rather than expand, uh, a counterpoint to look at might be Pentecostalism, which continues to expand um, during that same period and sort of compare the two. If they have the the same basic theological roots, as much as people want to contest that, um, why does one group continue to grow and the other doesn't? 
I wonder if anybody's ever written about that. I'm sure they have. I'm sure that's a question that somebody's explored. Are you aware of anybody that is for whom that is like the point of the spear for their interest? Yes. A number of years ago, I was involved in a study group that resulted in a book, a collection of essays um, edited by um, Hal Knight called From um, Aldersgate to Azusa Street. Mm. So basically from Wesley's conversion through the beginning of Pentecostal and really up through um, into the 20th century. Uh, so great. I think people great. are interested in that and following those connections. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, on a uh, back, back up, just a question that just kind of flitted through my mind. You know, there's so many positives that we've talked about in those between the uh, between the end of the Revolutionary War into the 1820s for Methodism. So many positives from really 1820 to the end of the 19th century. Were there any in your research and reading, I mean, the dark blots on the history, are there pieces of the history that, that we paper over well, that, um, that maybe we need as a people now to kind of acknowledge, notice, remember? Oh, I think the clearest example is slavery. Um, so Methodists in the South, um, became white Methodists in the South, um, became reconciled to the idea of slavery and, in many cases, enthusiastic supporters of it. Um, and this was something that people like Francis Asbury were never able to effectively counteract uh, to eliminate from the church. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to embed yourself in culture, then there's there's only so far that you can expect your people to move in one direction or another in that cultural setting. And for Southern white Methodists, accepting that slavery was a moral evil was just too much. Too far. Too far. Um, and so, you know, as, as American society divides over the issue of slavery, uh, Methodists do as well. The church splits in 1844, um, what, 15 years before the Civil War, um, exactly over this issue of slavery, North and South. And then they stay divided much longer than the nation stays divided. Uh, it <laughs> takes them until 1939 to finally pull it back together, which is also a fascinating thing that the wounds, uh, religious wounds, take seem to take much longer Uh to heal anything else that you would put in that category of gosh this this is maybe worth talking about more things that you you know you you have seen from your vantage point well i'll say the issue that concerned francis asbury uh was prosperity um mm -hmm. he tended to think that the loss that uh financial prosperity and and wesley believed this as well um would undermine spiritual discipline. Yeah. And I, I think what Asbury couldn't appreciate is that what you think of as, as prosperity is rooted in a certain cultural setting. So most Americans don't think of themselves as rich or prosperous, but in most places in the world, um, they still would be, right? Um, most people don't think of themselves as living a life of luxury, but compared to the way people lived two or 300 years ago, we absolutely live in luxury. <laughs> um, so it's always culturally defined, but the notion that Methodist discipline and uh, um, 
drive would lead people to become comfortable in their lives outside the church was something that always worried um, Asbury and Wesley. And and that's that's generally not a, a direction that most people today want to go because we still look at that. I mean, look at the prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. People look at that and say, well, that's a good thing, right? Um, uh, that's That's what we're all aiming for. Um, and there's a sense in which uh, prosperity was was not the goal for Wesley and Asbury, and in many senses, um, kind of a, a dangerous thing. And Wesley, he feared it, but he also even predicted it. He predicted that if people followed the Methodist rigor and lifestyle, cutting out, you know, the the gin or the the other things, he he predicted that they would become more successful. Hence the his sermon on the proper use of money, because he was worried that because of their frugal, faithful lifestyle, it was going to result in more money than they knew what to do with or would be helpful for their their Christian faith. Yeah, he saw it happening around him. <laughs> yeah. And Asbury saw it happening, too. Um, toward the end of his life, Asbury was revered, but everybody realized that as soon as he would de- he was dead, everything was going to change. Yeah. Nobody wanted to keep living the way Francis Asbury lived. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do think that that you know one of the one of the quotations that uh, I learned from Eddie, you know, several years ago when we were first working together was that if you want if you want value, I can't remember. I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to butcher it. Uh, basically, if you want things to stay the same, if you want to maintain the core values at the heart of something, then you're going to have to change kind of your approach from generation to generation. I think that's one of the threads that I hear in uh in kind of what you're talking about dr wigger that what what john wesley did in the in the english context in the 18th century and what francis asbury did in the late 18th century and early 19th century at the core of it were were a lot of the same convictions a lot of the same theological convictions and even some of the core methodology around kind of a disciplined life but it was there were a lot of things that changed uh in terms of the engagement with the culture and some of those things that changed probably weren't for the better. You know, there's a, there's a warning in that, um, that, that cult, embedding yourself in a particular culture comes at a certain cost or certain things that you have to pay attention to, but change is inevitable. And, and, and that's, that's an important thing that I think I'll probably take away from this conversation that in every generation, there needs to be a rediscovery of what's at the heart of it. And, uh, you know, a responsiveness to, to the culture. What about you, Eddie? What are, what are you thinking about? Yeah, that's what I've really have this whole time been thinking about is how Wesley in England was responsive to the moment he was in. Wesley's wisdom was sending Thomas Koch over to Francis Asbury to allow an American to begin to lead. And even Francis Asbury's wisdom at the Christmas conference was he wasn't going to accept Wesley's, uh, not ordination, but his becoming a bishop. He he had the pastors there vote on that, or he wouldn't have become Bishop Asbury. Dude was so, a smart politician. Yeah, he he every step along the journey, I think that's what I'm seeing is that wherever they were, that's where they lived. And there were life enough, particularly in the first century, 
to realize we've got to keep doing that. And maybe some of our inertia that finally caught us after World War II and the baby boom and really the, the explosion of the middle class after the, the baby boom, maybe that's a part of what finally stopped the innovation. I don't, I don't know. Dr. Weir, it looks like you've got a thought there <laughs> or a correction. Uh, no, not a correction. Not at all. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and I, I won't pretend to know why mainstream Methodism um, stopped growing in the middle of the 1960s. But I think one part of it is that a lot of its energy had been uh, sort of funneled off into these new movements. So at the same time you look at that, I think you really need to look at the growth of other Wesleyan traditions and Pentecostalism, as we've already talked about, would definitely be one of those because it continues to grow. Um, so in a sense, if you take a broader view, the Wesleyan model doesn't collapse in the mid-1960s. It's just that that uh, oldest part of it, so to speak, that um, begins to, to falter. So the goal, the goal is not to crash and burn like uh, uh, Tammy Faye Baker and to take flight and to hijack the planes of future success uh, and faithfulness as, uh, as other forms of, of religious life take off. I, that's what I'm hearing. What about? What? No, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Rieger, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, for, for taking some time with us today. I really appreciate the conversation. I love uh, digging into history and wish I had more time uh, to read and and to kind of to hear from what has been as we think about what can be. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, I kind of see it as my job here to, to answer your questions, but if I could take a minute what what's the kind of feedback that you get around these discussions and especially you're i'm sure you're much closer to the current debates in methodism and how it's kind of uh, um dividing up now what what's the what's the feedback that you get i'm interested i'm not a methodist so i don't i don't i don't know this from much personal experience i i think there's a lot of uh you know i honestly i think it's it's a religious identity and set of commitments where there's a story of explosive growth at the origin and to live within a time, I said this earlier, a time of decline creates a lot of confusion. It's almost like a cognitive dissonance between who you're supposed to be and what you're experiencing. And so that I think leads to uh, infighting and it leads mm-hmm. to uh, name calling and it leads to, um, you know, people who otherwise really love one another trying to figure out why the other person may be the reason to blame uh, uh, for the things that, that may or may not be going on. And so, you know, I think in the midst of it, you know, my hope would be that conversations with people like you and engaging uh, with others who've both done the history and the research and then also who may be interested in seeing uh, a Methodist identity and mission and, and ministry continue into the future, that it could be rediscovered. And some of that kind of initial energy uh, could be tapped into. Again, ultimately, the way I think about it is 
uh, you know, it's on, it's God's work, man, you know, and I don't know that God is abandoned, uh, any form of religious life. I just, that's just not the way I, I think about these things. I don't think, uh, God has abandoned Methodism or I wouldn't be in it. And, you know, the hope would be to ultimately, you know, find your way to, uh, an openness to the Holy spirit and, and perhaps, uh, new life within old forms. Um, so that's, that's my take. What about you, Eddie? You know, I was going to say we, we're caught in a sociological vice right now in terms of aging population. You know, there's a huge study in back in 2005, I think, came out of Stanford about birth rates in mainline denominations. Couples were having less than two kids uh, per family. Meanwhile, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters were having over four kids uh, per family. And so at some level, there's a sociological piece to the conversation. I think, Chris, you're right. We have these expectations. The numbers are against us, and so we fight. But I also think that there's a moment, there has been drift in terms of who we're called to be and how we're called to live that out and who we're called to serve. And I think um, right now there's a great sorting of that. And unfortunately, what that sorting has has uh devolved to sometimes is we look a lot like the culture. We just yell at each other and divide. And I'm not sure that's helpful for the body of Christ as we look to the future. How can we rediscover who we are, how we're called to live um, without tearing each other apart and tearing apart from each other? At, at the at the risk of uh you know, putting, I don't want to ask too personal a question, uh, of you, but have you found a, a home in another religious expression? Um, is there, is there another place you call home? Yeah, we attend, we attend a church in Columbia called the crossing. Um, it's one of these churches. It's not the, uh, Willow Creek seeker model. Um, but it's, it is, you have to scroll down their webpage quite a ways before you find out they're Presbyterians. Um, so it's that kind of church. Um, when we first started attending, they were meeting in a high school auditorium and it was 200 people. So we weren't a part of the somebody's basement, 20 people start. But now I think it's three or 4,000 in Columbia, which is only 120,000. Um, so it's a pretty dynamic place. Um, to be honest, we were a lot more involved when it was two or 300 people than we are now, which is almost nothing. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, we have found a home, although not a, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I didn't grow up Methodist. Um, my family was one of those families that just attended. We moved a fair amount, not, not like a military family, but a fair amount. And my parents just found whatever church they felt comfortable in. Uh, and I think that was part of my, trying to figure out what makes people feel comfortable in a church that eventually led me to early American Methodism in grad school. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a good, that's maybe a good place to land because I do think that what's at the heart of Methodism or Presbyterianism or Lutheranism or Catholicism or Pentecostalism is really, uh, you know, it's not that different, uh, really. There's, there's some, there is a, a dynamism that, uh, that really is just connected to the real, the real thing, whatever, whatever the real Christian thing is. Um, and, and it, you know, people can find their way to that in a lot of different contexts and expressions. So thanks for that reminder, Dr. Wigger. Thank you for your work on Methodism 
and uh, we'll have to check out your more recent uh, uh, books on the history of flight and the crashing and burning of evangelicalism. That'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. I admire what you're doing. So, yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, the best way to help us is to like, subscribe, or leave a review. If you would like to support this work financially, or if you have an idea for a future guest, you can go to theweightpodcast.com.